Hello and welcome to The Wise Why. This morning I am joined by an old friend and also somebody that I just blows my mind with his story. Um, and I didn't find out about it until about six months ago when Ralph told me about it uh, just after we'd gone live ourselves. So I'm going to do my usual thing and I'm going to try and introduce my guest and say the surname. Now, as everyone knows, I'm dyslexic and dyspraxic. So let's see if I can get this one right. Hello, Yemi Elegundi. That's right, yeah, Elegundi. Yeah. So, as, as usual, The Wise Way is not about me, it is about my guests. So, Yemi, please introduce yourself because, my goodness, you're one of the most inspirational people I genuinely have ever met. Wow, thank you. Yeah, so as you said, Yemi Elegundi, which is a Nigerian name. So, I was born to a Jamaican mother. And, um, well, when you read my book, I believed that I was born to a Nigerian father, hence the, the name but a lot of things have happened since then. I've um, worked in, I was born in the UK, but lived um, quite a portion of my life in Nigeria as a young man from age seven to 22, and then came back to the UK where I've worked in the IT industry for about 35 years or so. So you didn't just suddenly get on, I mean, your journey from being born in the UK, and then, I mean, you talk about this in your book, Time Will Tell, but you didn't just, get pack up your clothes and get in a nice suitcase and go to the airport and 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 travel to Nigeria did you the exact opposite almost um we didn't take a single thing apart from the clothes that we were wearing that day so when I say we that was me and my younger sister I was seven years old and my sister was five my parents as I said two different nationalities something happened between them my dad had planned something he'd got us passports and um, we'd, I'd got back from school that day. I was just with one of the neighbor, with one of the neighbors and my dad came home and just said, I'm taking the kids out for the day. And he took us straight to Heathrow Airport that day in exactly what we were wearing, left all our memories behind and we got on a plane and flew to Nigeria. That is huge. I mean, I've got a seven year old and I've got a box and a half of memories already, you know, her and I call it her memory box. That must have been incredibly strange to suddenly find yourself in Nigeria. I mean, you didn't know you were going to be staying there, right? No, it was a it was a very very strange time because, um, like I say, and in the book, I remember my dad coming home that day and saying, "I'm taking the kids. Uh, we're going to the barbers," and we went past every barber that we knew and and so on. But I don't remember even getting on a plane, you know. And we landed in Ghana initially. And I remember again telling, um, looking around and seeing people in Danshiki and so on. And I was amazed. And I remember clearly my dad saying, This is Ghana, uh, this is Accra, the capital of Ghana. And um, in the first edition of the book that I wrote, I said that we stayed in Ghana for a day and then moved on to Nigeria. Later on, when my dad read the book, he told me that we stayed there for two weeks. I don't recall that. And then we boarded another plane, and I'm talking about 1973, two kids. You can imagine how excited you should have been about boarding planes. I don't remember getting on two planes, but as soon as we landed in Nigeria, we started walking down this clay road. I remember absolutely everything, and, and I wrote it so vividly as well. It, it's amazing what the brain does to protect you, mm. because that must have been a very strange thing, that one minute you went to school, you came home, you expected to see your mum. The next minute you're landing in, was it Ghana? 
Ghana initially and then yeah. Nigeria later. Yeah, I mean, that's just huge. And so I've had some traumatic times in my life and there are people who don't believe it when I say I don't remember, but I don't. I know yeah. it happened, but I don't remember because my brain won't let me. Yeah, you, you see, for me, the opposite kind of happened. Apart from the planes, I could hold on to so much because when something's taken away from you, funny enough, your memories go even stronger about what you had. And so I can remember me wearing a blue, purplish uh, little paper hat when I was three years old for my birthday. I remember things that my mom would ask me, how do you even know that? And uh, uh, the headache for my dad when we got to Nigeria, as I said, I was seven, was that I knew my full address in the UK, including the postcode. So, you know, so I knew it. And so therefore I couldn't be stopped from writing to, to my dad either. So there, there were things. And sometimes people ask me, how do you remember so much so vividly? And I tend to ask them a question to older people, at least, who remember the passing of Diana, her Princess Diana. I just say, do you remember where you were when Princess Diana died? And people remember. And I say, it's the same. Mm, that's a really good point. I remember exactly where I was when we heard the news about Princess Diana. Um, so what was it like? You know, well, you've, you've just landed you're now in Nigeria that, I mean it must have been a cultural shock it was a huge culture shock because you know we were walking down this road a clay road um and I was thinking where are we what's going on and before you could even ask questions you had all these people running out to come and say hello and they were speaking in Yoruba as I know now but didn't know at the time and um although I'd heard my dad speak in Yoruba at home and um you know, they just came right now because everyone was expecting us in Nigeria. My dad knew he was taking us. So the only people who didn't know was me, my sister and my mom. And uh, we went into this house and they were, considering we're black, you know, we went into this house and there were kids hanging out the windows, looking in. Every the whole It was a little village and everyone was excited. And we just kept thinking what was going on. And it was the very next day, you know, we fell asleep because um, we were ex exhausted. The next day, um, my dad was writing a letter to my mum and I asked him, what are you doing? And he said, oh, what do you want to say to your mum? And I said, I just want to go home. And he said, well, you're not going home. You're staying here. And it felt like a joke at the time. And then I had Nigerian cousins telling me, yeah, you're not going. You're, you're here to stay. And it turned out we stayed there for a total of 14 years, which is one of the longest cases of what is called international parental child abduction. That's just incredible. Um, are you in contact with your mum now? Yeah, so um, my mum and I didn't end up having a good relationship because I would write to her for years, you know, while I was in Nigeria. I'd probably write about six letters. I'd get one reply. Um, it felt like she blamed us for going with my dad, you know. Uh, obviously, she, my mum was young. She's 21 years older than me, so she would have been about 28 when we went missing and you know she'd come home that day uh, I, when i wrote the second edition of time will tell i'd interviewed both my mom and my dad and so they'd given me their feedback as to how this all happened yeah uh, from their points of views and um you know she'd come home after a little while she realized that something was wrong then she checked the wardrobes and saw that his clothes were missing even though all of us were there and when she reported to the police you can imagine the police thought you know, it's not 24 hours and all of this. And they're in the UK somewhere, but we'd gone. 
you know, yeah. and uh, it took a while, maybe until the letters arrived before it was finally confirmed because we were missing children in the UK. Uh, so it took a while for it to, to all be confirmed. But in the meantime, my mum, you know, it's been a difficult relationship. So she she's held too many secrets back. She kind of blamed us. I felt like she, she denies it, but that's how it felt. And we did have one opportunity to come back to the UK, which we came back on a short visit 11 years after we'd gone missing. So I was 18 and stayed with my mom for a month. I actually gave her both mine and my sister's passports in the hope that she wouldn't give them back because she'd want us to stay. And But we had to test her. So the plan was on the final day, I'd ask her, mom, um, we need to go back. Can I have the passports? Even though I was scared of that because I felt that it might be an insult to her. So a week before, my sister and I kept planning, how do we do this? But lo and behold, my mom said, oh, here's your passports, by the way. You need to start planning to go back. And that really, really hurt. You know, so we ended up going back to Nigeria where my dad was excited to see us back because he didn't think we'd be coming back. And I thought, I've been spending 11 years trying to get out of Nigeria to get away from my dad. But my mother doesn't want me and my dad is happy to see us back. Wow. <laughs> The rejection and the pain in that is just, wow. Well, most children just like have an argument with their parents and go, you know, uh, and, and it's you've got to, that, that, that locked up 18-year-old self, mm. you're still desperately looking for your mum's approval because, you know, there's this big thing about uh, your brain isn't mature until you're 25. Yeah. And so you're still, you're still such a, a young person and looking for that, oh, my heart breaks for you. Yeah, it was, um, you know, then if you look at it from the other perspective as well, we arrived in Nigeria. At, my dad was the ninth of 10 children. And um, so he looked up to his oldest brother, the firstborn, as a father figure because he had lost both his parents by the time he was 10. He'd lost his dad at nine and his mother at 10. So his brother, who was 19 years older than him, um, was his father figure. That's the guy who really brought him up. So whatever that man said, my dad also did. And um, so, you know, we arrived at his house, the Uncle Joe, we arrived at his house in Nigeria that night. But in 14 years, the first 11 years or so, we spent boarding school. So we were in boarding schools and we, during school holidays, we would spend the time at uncles and aunts. So I'd be at an uncle, my sister would be at an aunt. So we didn't live with my dad. You know, and we went to some boarding schools. So the first two or three boarding schools, my sister and I went, we went to the same schools. And those were, you know, I remember it and it used to really trigger me when I explained this, but having written the books, um, I, it helped me get over it. But I'll give you one thing, which was, I couldn't talk about it in the past because it would just bring tears to my eyes. Mm -hmm. And that was, so we'd have the afternoon siesta at boarding school. And that was the time that Bissy, my sister is, Bissy and I would be split. You know, she'd go to the girls' dormitory, I'd be in the boys' dormitory. And as soon as the bell went to, you know, for wake up, which is an hour later, I can always see, as soon as I came out of the dormitory, my sister would be there just standing, waiting for me um, to come out. And, um, you know, and I could always picture her just there lonely, or if it wasn't her waiting for me, I'd be waiting for her. And people used to tell us that because we only had each other. We, mm -hmm. yeah, there were people who wanted to, you know, we had friends and so on. But 
the two of us understood the emotions that we were going through, me more than her, because she was obviously only five when we were taken. And um, people used to tell us, you're going to be separated. And we thought, nah, it's impossible. You know, we can ne never be separated. But of course, when we went to secondary school, we went to different colleges. I uh, was still in boarding school. And that's when we did get separated. That's really tough. So I've got a little bit of insight into this for reasons I, I won't say live on air, but it's about those moments and how you can be ripped and ripped and ripped. So um, one of the situations I do know is, is my sister and I are really tight. And the reason we're tight is at five years old, she was knocked over and she disappeared for 10 weeks. Um, she didn't disappear. She was in hospital for 10 weeks. And um, the she was the, the injury on her brain was was pretty significant, to be honest. And the person who came home, and I talked about this quite a lot, and this one I will share. Uh, when she came home from the hospital, she smelt different. She wasn't, yeah, we were tight as hell. Um, but she smelt different and she wasn't the same. We're still really tight and you'll never get anyone to get between us. Same with my brother, actually. We're really, really tight. Don't try and get between any, either one of us. But that's because of that childhood trauma of my sister was five. I was three, my brother was one, yeah, one and a half. And that, yeah, you cut, you know, Lisa, when she was learning, she was going, she went back to school, went back to a normal school, and she was in a wheelchair and she was having to learn to walk and she was having epileptic fits and people were taking the mickey out of her. And I was about seven and I'd walk into this big group of people and I would be pushing, shoving them, and, and you know, I'd be there ready to, to fight and defend my sister. Don't know if you had similar things. Yeah, so my sister and I, we're both mid-50s now. Well, actually, I'm late 50s now. So uh, my sister's 55 and I'm two years older, <laughs> without saying my age. <laughs> um, and birthday's in February, by the way. So, yeah, so when people say you're nearly 60, <laughs> yeah, when people say you're nearly 60, actually, I can't dispute it anymore. But um, we are very, very close. We talk every other day, minimum if not every day, you know, just to say hello. We've got nothing to say, but we'll talk anyway. Yeah, that really, you know, we had to look after each other. Um, and again, just to give you one quick example, when we arrived in Nigeria, we stayed at one of my uncle's house, another of my dad's brothers. And this was probably in the first month or so that we'd arrived when there was a burglary. Uh, 11 armed robbers, all with knives, came into that house and um, my dad, uh, it's, I think I wrote it in the book as well. My dad, that day when the, when the burglars came in, he ran out of the house in his underwear and ran out, leaving us behind in a bed. But, um, my sister and I were still sharing the same bed at that time um, because obviously it was a small house. But my uncle who was there was busy fighting 11 armed robbers. You know, he got stabbed a few times, but he fought them, injured one or two of them. And they came into the room where we were lying down and my sister wanted to, my sister started screaming and I put my hand over her mouth. And what they did was they rolled us to one side, pulled the sheets from underneath us. Uh, so just so that, so the bed sheet, so that they could put stuff inside the bed sheet as a sack to carry things that they were stealing away. So, wow. yeah. So, you know, we've always been there for each other. We've been through a lot together. And when I wrote the original Time Would Tell, because it was 30 years of things in my head and that I couldn't let go of, and I wrote it not to be a book, I just wrote it for me because I thought, why is this all in my head? And it turned out that people wanted to read it. But if one person I wanted to authenticate it was my sister. 
And once she knew idea and she just said, yeah, uh, she wanted to write her book, but she's more reserved than me. She, she, she's not really a public person. And this happens a lot, you know, in a case of abduction, children, you don't really hear from the children. You hear from the parents. Oh, he took my dad. She took my, sorry, he took my son, my child. She took my child and so on. And I should have them. I should have them. But you don't hear of the effects that it has on the child. So through writing that book, I discussed it on BBC News back then in 2011, I was one of the first children to talk about the effects of parental abduction on the child. Wow. I'm just going to put the, the thing on to the, the ticker tape. So if you want to get Yemi's book, Time Will Tell, you can get it off um, the leading uh, online platform, which I won't mention here. Um, and this is what the book looks like. So this is what you're looking for. But Yemi didn't stop at one book, did you? No, no. You did a second one, right? So yes. coming what you believe, which is amazing. Thank you. Can you Thank you very much. A little bit on that as well. So becoming what you believe was just published actually just last month, October. I finally published it. But again, there was a lot of things in my head over the years of my career and um things that I've learned. So I have this knack, just like time will tell, of really observing things as they go by and seeing them in a different way and the same applies you know i went to lots of courses read a lot of books and um you know experiences and a lot of things stayed with me and later on in life you know people ask oh how do i get a car like yours how do i do this and yeah uh, or you come across as such a nice guy or humble guy even though you're 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 doing well and so on so how do i get to do these things what's my opportunity to get as a black people in particular um, in IT, just like women, women you, you know that the, the balance is just not right yet. And, um, you know, I'll have black people asking me, how do I get into IT? How do I become a referee, for example? All those kind of things. And I just felt that I needed to give back. You know, after so many years in the industry, I took a break earlier on this year. This I've been off for about seven months. And that gave me the time to finally look at my phone and you won't believe the notes that I've written over the years. It just, and I started to write this book uh, called Becoming What You Believe. And the idea of it, even though the title says Becoming What You Believe, is really to avoid becoming what you do not want to become, if that makes sense. You've got some great advice in there. I loved it when I was reading it. And uh, the one bit that obviously jumps out is about leaving a job on a good note, so many people get really, really, they, they end up hating the, the company they're working for and they want to stick two fingers firmly in their faces and they leave under a black cloud, but leaving with dignity and then not moving to the social channels and absolutely trashing them. I think it was a really good bit of advice and there's other bits of advice in there. If you could cherry pick anything, is there one that just springs to mind right now? Yeah. Um Obviously, the one about leaving on, on good terms or even if you leave on bad terms is to not trash them is very, very important because, um, you know, don't bite the hand that feeds you. You hear that quite often. You never know when that company might be might acquire the company that you've gone to work for. And then you end up back where, and you know that you'll be the first one out if, if you've done that. And also there's more humility in not throwing mud because as I wrote in the book, actually, if you throw mud, you lose ground. So, um, but the most important one, I'll, I'll pick two. Um, one is about brand and self-advocacy. I really believe in that. And my name has helped me a lot, Yemi, because 
in the UK is quite unique. So when you hear Yemi, just like you said, or when Ralph said, do you know Yemi? You know, this <laughs> helps me a lot. And it made me realize the importance of building that brand and, you know, making sure that wherever I work, there's two brands, there's the company brand, and then there's my brand, you know, so it's always two brands coming in synergy to agree with each other to work together. And then the other one is in chapter 10. And that is something that is was really important. It actually drove me to write this book because a lot of the self-help books that I've read tell you about, you know, um, think with the end in mind and all these things. But what they don't tell you about the end in mind is think about your pension and um, think about your investments for retirement. And I was lucky when I started my sales career, I started out in financial services and I worked in it for three to four years. So I knew a lot about pensions, endowments back then, um, writing deeds and um, writing your will and so on. So I started my initial savings, uh, pension saving at the age of 21 or 22. And that's really helped a lot, you know, it's part of why I've been able to take a good break. And um, so I I knew the importance of it. And I knew so many people who I'd spoken to who never looked at their pension funds, who never, you know, they just think, yeah, it'll be fine at the end or I'll rely on the state pension. So that's one thing that I wrote in there that I thought hopefully will give back and help a lot of people as well. Brilliant advice because I'm one of those because I was an art an actor for many years and I was living hand to mouth. Um, I didn't get a pension until I joined D-Link. I remember um, there I was and it was like they said I was I, I get a pension and you know I was in my forties at this point and it was like wow this is and, and this is unbelievable. I want to talk a little bit actually about how we met because yeah. we've talked about your book and we've talked about your books um and i also want to talk about your your business but we met on a sales floor didn't we we did yeah we did so that was quite a few years ago now and yeah absolutely yeah we were the black and whites now so <laughs> yeah. yeah and no beard at the time actually so <laughs> but yeah it, it was and um it was it was an absolute pleasure meeting you you haven't changed much and you look you know that smile that big smile of yours still the same um, was yeah. was i running a spiff day by any chance which the sales were, promotion that was day. dealing was it yeah yeah was yes, i quiet yeah. <laughs> no you were bubbly <laughs> very very bubbly you were definitely alive so yeah i remember and, that vividly yeah and people don't realize what we used to do and and i just want to touch on the fun that we used to have mm. so at the time I, it was probably um exertus at the time you know micro p in those days and we used to do these sales incentive days and you would have one or two running and the idea was to really promote and push your product but also to get the guys and give them prizes right yeah yeah so i was at ingram micro so it was ingram micro um at the time yeah so oh, with Alan. oh my yeah. goodness we have to we have to just say that Alan Matthews God rest you um yes of yeah. course I forgot it was Ingram Micro yeah. we had some busy busy days though and and what people probably can't imagine is when you're a vendor going into a distributor you come in and you've got a vendor table and mm. you're all there and you're all working and they don't realize that because you're a field you're in the field the other vendors become part of your team don't they they do, they do. And and the other thing is when you're a vendor and you've got that little to desk, sometimes the salespeople at the distributor or the reseller or the VAR, they don't realize 
the significance and the importance of you traveling. They don't know how far you've traveled, what time you got up, um, and when you go to speak to this, like, oh, I'm busy. And, you know, so I used to tell them that, do you think that your company would have asked me to come in here if I couldn't give you something? And do you think that I would have wanted to get up, um, come in here, travel all the way here, get back to get back home when you're in bed, you know, yeah. if I didn't have something to offer? And yeah, you know, we worked very, very, very hard and, you know, dedicated long, long hours back then as well. And those, I was at distribution at the time. And I remember listening to you and listening to other vendors who would come in and it helped me because I was a top salesperson there, but it was because I would give that time to listen to what people had to say. Yeah, of course I wanted to win uh, some of those incentives and did all right with those, but it was more to learn. And that was my thing because I didn't study IT. I, I did civil engineering. And again, I wrote that in Becoming What You Believe. I came back to the UK. I did civil engineering, couldn't get a job in civil engineering, ended up in financial services, which I never studied, but I was very good because I read everything and learned very quickly but my passion was technology so i came into it and the first thing i did was buy an it dictionary so i could understand what people were talking about and so i learned very quickly and that's always been my thing and again i write in becoming what you believe a student being a student always just brilliant so now you've had your break and you're launching aren't you <laughs> yes so I'm going back into the industry that I know very well, um, IT in particular. So I started a company called TWT Consultancy Services. And TWT, if anyone can figure that out, um, actually comes from Time Will Tell, because three books are called TWT 1, 2, and 3. And um, so the idea of my, of my business is to collaborate with other companies and um, offer IT services and so on, um, solutions, and just my expertise, whether it's helping to do some business development in there, um, anything like that. So um, I'm, yeah, I'm back in the industry. And then there's two other bows to the business, which is obviously trying to help other people who want to publish their own books. Um, because the first two books that I did, the first two time sales were published by, they're self-published, but by companies where I paid thousands of pounds for. Uh, the last two books that I've done were 100% Yemi. So they were written by me. Uh, the book covers were designed by me. And then the publishing was done um, by me learning how to use Amazon Kindle publishing tools and getting it done that way. So I try to help other people now who want to tell their story. I can help them write it if they need to, but most of all, I can show them or help them publish it through Amazon Kindle. And then the final thing I do, which I've always done, is mentoring, helping uh, people to. Um, achieve whatever they want to try to achieve, whether it's setting up their own business, whether it's just that they want guidance in becoming what they want to become and so on as well. I, I love it. Now, we've had a lovely comment coming from Akino Delati, who I absolutely adore. So lovely to hear about your journey, Yemi. Very inspiring to me, a fellow Nigerian in IT. The positivity you. you share and your amazing ability to connect with people on a people level. You and Akeen have to connect because you yeah. are, you, honestly, you two would be a powerhouse. So yeah. this is where the tables get to be turned and you get to ask me a question. Now, I always do panic because I've got no idea what this is going to be. <laughs> so you get to try and, uh, well, not 
try and put me off off when I mean, we know each other really well but you get to ask me a question so I'm going to stand here and like we'll sit here and go Ooh. so off you go <laughs> well um so you've spoken a lot about dyslexia and so on um so how did it feel when you really f- believed that you're going to start your own podcast and your own business and you know you're going to have to read a lot like you've had to at least read parts of my book for example especially in those early years when people might not know who KVDB really is <laughs> and the fact that podcasts usually I um don't most podcasters don't go on for two years and you'll celebrate two years congratulations by the way so how did that start and how do you feel about it so it's, it's a really interesting situation because I'm just about to launch again something that I didn't mean didn't realize I was going to do and I think that's uh, I talk about Alice moments quite a lot and I talk about just my whole life so it was a big life change in my early 30s and that taught me to just jump into the deep hole and see where I landed and so I am very um, not gung-ho because there is there is structure in what I'm doing so the podcast came about because dyslexia means that writing can be a little bit of a challenge Um, I do blog and I have got loads of really useful blogs on the website, but I've always got a a fear. And then there's also a fear that I'm not going to be very good at anything. So I live my life worrying and I do suffer because I'm naturally an introvert, not an extrovert. So I guess I pushed myself a little bit. So I knew somebody wanted to have a voice on LinkedIn. They couldn't get a voice on LinkedIn. It took me an extra glass of wine and I hit send and I applied and I got it. Um, and then it was like, oh, I need to do it. Now, because the person I am, if I don't throw myself into something 100%, I will absolutely talk myself out of it because I've got the ants that come in, as Joy Foster calls them, the automatic negative thoughts. They come marching in and they will destroy me. So I've learned because of the dyslexia, because of the way my brain works, that if I don't do it immediately, I won't do it. And that sounds really silly, but I will talk, I really will talk myself out of it. So a lot of the stuff I'm brave because I have to be. So it was one of those brave moments where I had to be because I got the permission. So I knew I had to launch it in two weeks because if I didn't launch it, I wouldn't launch it and it would sit on the shelf. So I launched it without really much of a plan apart from the name because I really wanted it to be about wisdom and I wanted it to be about the why's why. I just, and the, the name was always there. Not that it meant to be. As soon as I got permission, it was like, oh yeah, the why's why. And it was ridiculous. And the evolution of talking about like your book has been incredible because it started off with a beetle. Now it's very branded and it all looks very nice. But the podcast was my way of kind of pushing out into thought leadership to show what I actually do and what my, telling my story. But I didn't want it to be about me. I don't mind this bit at the end, uh, but that introvert comes out. So when I'm sitting on a call, I'm the one that has to really focus to, to speak up, which people don't expect. Um, I'm good in my zone, but I'm not comfortable out of my zone. Um, and so that's why I put the question at the end, because otherwise I wasn't going to talk. And and it was right. No, I need to do this. Um, and the two years I didn't expect. I thought I'd do 10 episodes, maybe. Mm-hmm. And now this is episode 69, I think. And it's not going to stop because the more people that I do it every week, the more people go, oh, I really like it. And I go, really? And they go, yeah, because you're really celebrating your guest. And so it's my way of giving back. It's 100% about me saying to people, share your story, um, because I want to hear it. So I, I do this this way. And then the online course is coming because I didn't think I was going to launch an online course. In fact, a bit like the podcast, I said I never will. A bit like the YouTube channel, I said I never will. <laughs> and here I am. 
So it's really interesting that now these online courses are coming out because somebody said, oh, I'd really love to be able to do that as an online course. And so I looked at what I got and now I'm launching three courses in a couple of weeks and or by the end of the month, maybe December. And it's like, oh. So I think it comes down to that bravery of I'm going to jump into the hole. I'm going to see where I land, but I have to react and do it because if I don't do it, I'm going to talk myself out of it, if that makes sense. It, it makes sense. And congratulations, by the way. And just like you, you wouldn't people wouldn't believe it unless people really know me that I'm an introvert as well. Although I'm very extrovert because I've written books and I'll talk about myself and so on. But I am very introvert as well because that's how I grew up. When you read Time Will Tell, you'll see I just wanted to be on my own apart from spending time with my sister. And then the other part about, you know, you making sure you did what you wanted to do is a lot of what my of what becoming what you believe is all about is that you know tr uh, making sure that if you dream the first quote in the book is from Pablo Picasso anything you dream about is um is real you know and that's the first quote in the book quotations are very important to me by the way and you know those are the kind of things so but you you have to go for it you have to plan for it you have to go for it so well done to you oh and thank you Sorry, can I just quickly say as well that if people want to find out more about me, you could just go on to yemielegunde.com. You'll find out, you'll see plenty of photos about me growing up in Nigeria as well. And you'll find out a lot more information about the books. And if you if you want a signed copy of any books, you can order them from there as well. <laughs> awesome. No, I think it's important. And Akeen's just come back and says time, it comes back to time more time. And it does. You know, it's like we, we've learned skills to get over our, our introvertness and and time time is what shapes me you know yeah, if you think yeah. about it different very different childhood but there was trauma and that trauma has fired me on uh you know there was my sister having to learn to reward learn to talk I was having to learn to talk because I'd got I've been born with this speech impediment and and there was my brother as well and and it's that bonding that 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 journey it's incredible how our childhood shapes us so time yeah. will definitely tell so Time Will Tell was such a big um, title for me. And I'll, I'll leave one bombshell for you, So, which is why I wrote the third book. So I was taken away by my dad to Nigeria, where I lived for so many years. And two years ago, I won't go into explanation. You'll have to read it. But two years ago, I found out that he's not my biological father. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. leave it there, because I think it's a great cliffhanger to leave it on. So people go and read Yemi's book, Time Will Tell. It is awesome and then if you really want to know all about just dreaming and believing and achieving get his new one becoming what you believe which is awesome uh yemi thank you so much for your time this morning i really appreciate it and um i cherish you thank you so much kirsty for inviting me especially on your second anniversary really appreciate it no problem thanks for everyone listening in as well <laughs>